Welcome back to the Mountains and the Sea. I'm Christy. This is Josh. We're so glad you're back with us today. Today, we don't have the gold experience for you. What? There better be a darn good reason why. There's a really good reason. Oh yeah, there's a real good reason. There's a real good reason. So, we had what the kids call, (laughs) we didn't at, for Tom Moon, who wrote the... Rolling Stone review of the album Come, which we just finished covering. Yep. And we kind of asked him if he still had the same opinions about it because it was fairly critical. Yes, and it's been a quarter of a century since it was written. Yeah, 25 (laughs) years. We asked him what he thought, and he said, why don't you have me on your podcast? So we had him on our podcast. Okay. Yeah. We have that interview for you coming up right now. It's great. He talks about all different kinds of stuff, what it's like being a reviewer now, what it was like being a reviewer then. He's a musician with a CD of his own out and a book uh, all about music. All really great stuff. We talk about that. We talk about his personal, what, connections? Yeah. Or his personal... Interactions. Interactions. Thank you. With yes. Prince. Yep. And he S- spent some time with him. Yep. More than he was allotted. Uh, I think well, it's nice to note. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we, he asked how much time we wanted, and I no, said, "No, I'm talking about his time with Prince." Oh. He got to spend more time with him than he was allotted. <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> Check it out. Also, spoiler alert: there's a nice little surprise regarding. A response that Prince had to the review that he wrote that was published in Rolling Stone that we talked to Tom about, and it is well worth listening to, to get to that part of the interview. Yes. Big welcome to Tom Moon, a music reviewer who's been working in the industry since 1983, and he covers a ton of genres. Tom joins us today because he wrote a review of Come for Rolling Stone in 1994, and that's the era that we're currently talking about here on The Mountains and the Sea. Tom, we're so glad to have you with us today. It's great to be with you. Thanks. Thank you. You know, we've been doing this podcast a little over a year, and you are officially our first guest on the podcast. So there is a imaginary trophy that we're sending your way. And or a lot of pressure. Yes. (laughs) Oh, no, no. It's fine. We have our listeners are amazing, always really supportive and kind. So you have no worries. (laughs) Um, I understand that you're... uh, a saxophonist and that you've played professionally. That's really cool. How did you go from, did you go from being a saxophonist who became a music reviewer or was it the other way around? Uh, Well, it's sort of a crazy story. I started out studying music. I went to the University of Miami School of Music and played down there, made my living playing for a number of years. And then I, I began to read the Miami Herald, which is the daily paper in Miami and was very upset with the way the coverage was on popular music in general and I wrote letters about it and finally after like the fourth letter one of the editors said hey you think you can do better and uh, invited me to audition and which I did I wrote, wrote a couple jazz reviews where they they published their critic 
but they read my stuff, and that's how I started writing. So I, it was kind of fluky. It, it's definitely not the way it happens these days in journalism. But the story is then I, I worked for the Miami Herald. I wrote for Rolling Stone, Spin, Esquire, GQ, a bunch of places. Got hired at the Philadelphia Inquirer in 1988 and was there until 2004, and I left uh, – during some restructuring they were doing and they had buyouts i took a buyout to write this book and now i'm back to having sort of an existence where i play out three or four times a week at various small clubs here in philly and um you know i still write i i'm still a contributor for npr but i've curtailed uh, a lot of the freelance stuff just because uh the market is so strange now we're in a world where the kinds of writing that uh, people like myself did before streaming is not as important. Right. And actually, you know, uh, I, th- there's a great thread today on Facebook I was reading about podcasting and has podcasting impacted music journalism. And, you know, it's it, it, it was really interesting to think about how really now we're in this world where people can have access to just essentially anything and everything they can think of an artist a record whatever they can find it they can hear it within seconds and they don't need the filter of someone who uh like what i used to do where i was a critic and a scout and i was finding artists and records that people just wouldn't have stumbled across in the same way so it's you know we're in a whole different world uh which i embrace Uh, you you know i miss the the role of the critic in the discussion about music the larger discussion about music through through history has been that the critic is not someone who's sitting in an ivory tower pronouncing on I say this is good and I say this is bad. It, the idea is to actually spark more of an of a real dialogue between people who are informed listeners like critics and historians, the artists themselves, and the audience. And so, in fact, what you guys are doing, what this this endeavor is, is sort of getting at that from another direction. And I, I really believe that the thing that is most important for the evolution of music now we're talking not music criticism and writing the the most important thing is that there is an informed discussion like this because what we're where we're at now is people are on spotify they go through stuff they hear 10 or 15 seconds of music and they make a decision And, you know, my argument, music is not instant. You don't necessarily get it right away. The, the, right. the artist that you guys are focusing on is someone who at any given point in his career, uh, even in the points where people f- felt like he'd kind of lost his way a little bit, created music that you maybe had to revisit to really digest. And and I think that's, you know, that's why he was such an amazing artist. That's one of the reasons he was such an amazing artist is that even with something that's as simple as controversy, that's as straightforward as those early records, you don't necessarily get, you can't parse it in one listen. You know, you almost have to go back. You almost have to think about it both in terms of its structure, its harmony, its uh, the sonics. You know? Yeah, well, and, you know, the artists don't create it in one go. 
it's hard to really understand it all in one yeah. go, and just one listen. Right. That's, and that's, but that's, that's yeah. you know, that's not true with like some K-pop and some other things that are going on right, right. now. But it is true <laughs> uh, with real artists. What you want in this new sort of world where everything's available always is some sort of a me- mechanism for this kind of discussion that we're talking about. And here's why. Um, and I don't want to like go too long down this road, but I believe that you know, from years of interviewing artists, including Prince, the thing that I learned m- most is that they, are, you know, some of them are very upset about negative criticism. Some of them take it, some of them don't read it at all, but they are intensely interested in the way their work reverberates in the culture. And sometimes people who are critics who are informed listeners can help uh, move, help enlighten them and and create a, uh, an awareness in the artists themselves about what's going on. Okay. Yeah, that that's a really good point. And I wanted to ask you kind of off the bat here too, that, you know, we read a little bit about your music background uh, before this conversation. And I thought that, I, I guess it's probably not rare to be a musician and a music critic, but you've studied, and like you said, this was your schooling. So I wondered, how does being not just someone who can read music, like you said, but sometimes you would, I read in an interview where if you were critiquing music, you would sometimes go sit down at a piano and try to figure Mm -hmm. out what was going on in the song that you were reviewing. But it would seem like your talents would validate your observations about other people's music. And I wondered if you found that the case uh, to be the case over the years. Not always. I mean, you know, certainly like I treated it and do treat it as another kit, another tool in the toolkit of what do I how do I process this sound? You know, and for many people who write about music who are not um, necessarily trained musicians, their toolkit has some other things that I don't have. Uh, they are, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I know uh, several of my favorite writers are people who come out of literary criticism and they studied English literature and they understand sort of the context in which a line in a Joni Mitchell song lines up with something from, you know, one of the great poets in in ways that mm-hmm. I would really have to like woodshed that <laughs> to have. So I don't think that it's, <laughs> right. it, you know, and I've had this, I've, I've talked about this a lot with students at schools and stuff when I talk to journalism school and music schools about this idea that uh, is this a pre- prerequisite? It is not. You don't have to have special musical training to write about music. What you do have to have is the curiosity that says, I want to figure out everything I can about something. And I've had friends who do this, who are not musicians, who have trained mm-hmm. themselves. They've taught themselves enough guitar in much the same way that, you know, Bradley Cooper taught himself how to play enough to, to, to you know, be credible in that role. Um, anything yeah. that you can bring, any awareness that you can bring to what the artist is contending with at any given time is really what you want. You know, it's not so much, oh, I can hear that he's doing this, this or this harmonic trick at any given point. It's more that you understand that he's the decisions that he's making 
And you can do that whether you have, have studied music professionally or, you know, at a conservatory or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very cool. All right. Can you tell us how you came to be the one to write the review of Come for Rolling Stone that's back good, in 94? That, that, that's a good question. I honestly don't remember. Now, I was Thank a contributor <laughs> uh, for them. I was in a pool of people that reviewed records. Okay. Starting, okay. starting in about the probably the early 90s, like 1990 or even before that. Um, and okay. I w- the, often the reviews would be the shorter ones. You know, they had at that time, there was a, a wonderful group of people that were contributing to Rolling Stone. And the writing was at a consistently high level. The editor of the reviews section was a man named Anthony DeCurtis, who is just one of the absolute deans of rock journalism. On top of that, an amazing editor. And Cool. So hmm. part of these, the pairings he would do is he would, he, he would, you would have conversations with him just about what you were listening to. And he would file away what you were telling him. And, you know, often those conversations didn't result in an assignment that was just a conversation. You know, that's very different from how things right. work now. But this, the, the, out of those conversations, he came to understand what his, various contributors were listening to and what they cared about. And I'm sure that at a point before Prince changed his name to the symbol and all the stuff happened that mm-hmm. was kind of concurrent with Come, he, uh, Anthony and I had a conversation about Prince and how what an interesting place in his evolution he was at that, uh, you know, at that point. And this would have been maybe six months or a year before the record dropped. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's cool. I was just wondering, I don't know, I had pictured, you know, an assignment or like you walked in on a, saw your, the assignments on a whiteboard somewhere and wrote your name down or wouldn't that be nice? That's cool. But, but no, (laughs) and you know, there were times when I would call them and, uh, and I do this with NPR still where (laughs) I'll hear something Uh and I'll go, Oh my gosh, this is an amazing record. Mm. We must, I I have to find a place to, I I need a platform to do something with this record. And, you know, but I don't remember that going on with this i think that this was one of the records with him now i'd I'd written a lot about him by that point and with him it was kind of like he was throughout his entire recording career one of the few people i would say that i i without a fail i would listen to anything he did i i wanted to hear Mm -hmm. what he was thinking about Always. Oh, cool. Well, that's good. Well, we're glad to know that you were a fan or at least a follower. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny because like people are like, oh, you, you know, critics, they're not fans of anything. And and of course, that's not true. Everyone has no uh, you know, well, people they love. Of course, favorites. you're fans. <laughs> yeah. you're, you're right. You're not writing about music because you're not a fan yeah, of it. Exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. So speaking of being a fan, it seems like you weren't really a big fan fan of the name change in 94 it wasn't you called it i love this line the most spectacular slow motion career derailment in the history of popular music and, which I, I think i think was more fact than opinion I'll I, just throw that in. well it was <laughs> you know it's very interesting first of all to go back all right this has been a long time now yeah and well, 25 it years is. i mean it's yeah i mean the hindsight is you know, maybe it was a good thing. Right. 
Well, and I don't know. I'd love to hear your opinion well, on that. I think that in his thinking, it was a necessary thing that th- there was a point at which he had done whatever he could do within like both the business system, you know, with his lawyers and, and whatever and the legal system to sort of arrive at something that he he could live with. And, you know, this is the the music business is interesting. It's like this nexus of people with creative passion and incredible skill up against a structure that only wants to monetize that and doesn't really care about any of the uh, sort of collateral damage that might come to someone's ego or psyche or self-worth, the self-estimation, any of those things might not even come into the to the calculus from the re- label standpoint in a confrontation with an artist. But that stuff mattered to him. And certainly right. the the ownership of the masters mattered to him and the, the who right. what he could do with his work mattered to him. So what comes out of that whole episode that ends up being incredibly positive is a bunch of artists, not just him, become aware of the language of their contracts in a way that sets off a long set of dominoes for the industry at large to to not take advantage of people in the way that they had been. So and that, you, you know, really, when when we do the long history of popular music, we'll look back on this episode with him as a catalyst for a greater openness and fairness toward the artists and and an agitation on the part of the artists just to sort of work within the system in a way that allowed them ownership of their masters and all that so that's the positive the negative or or the things that were that were ungainly and un- unwieldy and unexplained was this whole idea that he had to do this and essentially remarket himself and bring bring himself to the public in this other persona that required some mental calibration on the part of the audience and and not just that one time right because you know there were right. there were various looks at various points during that period you know where he was trying to do one thing and the black album was another thing and you know so so like it's not it wasn't that it was just like oh you're 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 what we would say now is oh you were diluting your brand during that whole time yes he was that but it was more mm-hmm. that he was actually sort of throwing a kind of cautionary like approach this with a certain wariness to his audience kind of message just mm-hmm. because of you know you just didn't know suddenly what you were getting and i think that the where where what i wrote there that's that sentence you quoted it uh-huh. misses is that we didn't see it we it was impossible like top of mind was the fact that this guy was doing this thing that was confusing and and potentially like you know off-putting to his audience we didn't at that point recognize what a catalyst he was for the for the the positive thing the change that that came to to, you know that he came to see rectified in his you know later and that that a lot of artists credit him with 
sort of shining the flashlight on this this aspect of the business. So it's, you know, it's a mixed bag. But in any sort of thing, when you look back on it that many years later, you go, oh, yeah, well, I didn't see the whole picture there now, did we? Yeah. And of course, looking back now, it's um, for me as a lifelong fan, I think, wow, all of this happened in the first half of his career. But even then, he was 15, 16 years into you know, skyrocketing stardom. And he could also afford to take that kind of risk at that point. So he had sort of realized, well, I need to take control of my work as an artist. But he also stood on the shoulders a little bit of the record label that that got him there. And he sort of admitted that also throughout the process that it wasn't about regret or that he had animosity supposedly towards Warner Brothers because without them he wouldn't have made it to where he was to be able to take that kind of stand which is this weird dichotomy right. I guess. And you know it should be known that the people he he was careful because the people that helped launch him some of them were still there when he returned and you know there was mm-hmm. a lot of there was a lot of goodwill toward him within the the label the whole way through this you know it's like the Hmm. the 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 legal people had to be a certain way and there were there you know there was things were what they were in the negotiations and everything else but like there was still love for him no that's That's really nice that's good to hear cool yeah so let's talk about the music just a little bit i know it's i don't know if you've like when the last time you listened this to it morning. was, but in your original, <laughs> this morning, oh, hey, oh all right. awesome, great. All right. So having just listened to it this morning, do you still think that space and loose are so uncreative as to have come from a studio? Cat yes. <laughs> yes, actually yeah, I really? do. There's parts of the, the okay. Oh, so here's the thing. Cause those were our favorites <laughs> from the album. <laughs> here's the thing with him. So here's a little thing for a future episode for you guys. The thing that we want, this is like a story idea that we talked about a lot after he died and we were dealing with the, the estate and everything. What we want from the vault and I'll answer your question in a minute, but what we want from the vault, right. Is not just more of that kind of material. Cause we know that for a lot of, of his career, certainly in the, you know, in the period after, let's take Diamonds and Pearls as a couple years before come as a, a, a thing. Yeah. We know that at that point he was writing a lot of stuff that was very similar to those tracks on come. And we we can probably find, I don't know, maybe a hundred, maybe more of of sketches that he was working on that would essentially be one chord vamps with you know some interesting or not lyrics and you know maybe maybe as much fleshed out with like guitar solo and and some other things like on the records but we 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 would see a lot of that what i think we the music world needs to see and hear is what he did when he wasn't doing that and the more experimental stuff that we know exists and it may not be as as much there may not be as much of it there may not be stuff that's actually finished but we know that he was one of those artists who just simply wrote and there were days when he wrote 
you know, stuff like Let It Go. And there were days when he wrote uh, Diamonds and Pearls, for example. Uh, right. And, you know, right. what what I think about this record, when I heard it today, I was like, and and I listened to it before I went back and then read what I, what Rolling Stone published. But um, <laughs> mm-hmm. the the this record is one of those, and there's a couple others in the 90s, where he's van- there's a lot of one chord vamp and you know as a composer he was someone who who could write something as beautiful as purple rain or as as intricate harmonically as some of the stuff on sign of the times you know like a door when you hear a door what you're hearing right. is someone who understands song form as goes back to Cole Porter and George Gershwin and and is you know mm-hmm. he's writing something that sort of comes out of a tradition and with this stuff he's he's just basically taking the template of what was going on in hip hop what was going on you know in in pop at the time he's not really given us very much harmonic meat on the bone. It's ba- it's a lot of one chord vamps, and you know my thing mm. with with artists generally is that when you hear them do this, and you know when when there's like five or six tracks in a row that use that lean on a similar strategy like this, that says something. Mm-hmm. There's you know there's some tells in music, and one of them is. Not so much repetition, you know, like these songs are not all the same exact song. The grooves are very different. The the drum programming is ridiculous. You, you know, there's a lot there's yeah. a lot of smart stuff that's going on in this record. But, you know, if you were to transcribe it at a piano, you would see a lot of one chord. And, you, you know, that's there's nothing wrong with that. But. I think part of the issue for people with Prince in this period is that he's not giving us the richness of, you know, some of the other some of the things that he he did that were as compositions that were so rich. Right. Okay, well what was your what song did you like? Let the it best? go. Well, okay, so we're we're the oh yeah. really? All okay. Right. So cuz we're the mountains and the sea, we pick a time capsule, a high and yeah. a low for every album that we right. talk about. So the your your high is yeah. Let it go and what's your least favorite? Oh boy. Now I have to go uh, Get the look. Think of it about the tracks. Um, I also liked Pharaoh. Oh, well, you Pharaoh uh, track uh-huh. three. Pheromone, yeah, yeah, pheromone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, like title track. Come, it, it's okay. like th- that. I'd put that as my least favorite, just because I heard okay. his bands at various times do do these kinds of things live. And just destroy mm-hmm. it, like you know that kind of groove. Yeah. He can, he, he, you, you yeah. know, in a live setting, he could take this and make it and sell it to anyone. But yeah. here, it just doesn't. It doesn't earn its eleven minutes. No, it abs- we absolutely agree. We there's a couple of uh, unreleased versions that are four to five minutes, and we both mm-hmm. think that those are. A much much better interpretation of it, a, a better length, and you leave out some of the things that just really don't work in that eleven yeah. minutes. But we kind of think the eleven minute version being on the album was kind of a big middle finger yeah. to. Oh Warner sure, Brothers. yeah. We thought a lot of the album, a lot of the album was a little bit self inflicted mind mind bomb, you know, time bombs, I guess, to <laughs> uh, just sabotage the record a little bit uh, to some right. degree, not without. 
not without trashing it or making it just a piece of work that had no redeeming value, but he certainly was not interested. Uh, he seemed very disengaged, I guess, in parts of this album. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, that was the challenge as a critic was to acknowledge that this guy had so much resources at his disposal as a musician, and yet he was doing this thing that that really made you feel like this was a flame out in progress, that he was really like we were we, as consumers of this work. We were we were taking something in that was not as earnest or as genuine as Diamonds and Pearls, for example, you know, or records that he'd done where he was really, you know, invested in them. Not to say he's not musically invested, but for everything you're just talking about, about like, you know, sort of this, the, the from the cover image to the, the you know, yeah. the, the 11 minute track one, uh, you know, it's like he's yeah. definitely playing a game here rather than giving us his best work. Right. Agreed. As we were researching Come for our podcast a couple episodes ago, we uh, came across a Facebook post from housequake.com where they had posted photos of a letter that Prince actually sent to you, handwritten. And uh, we were wondering if you might be able to recount a little bit of that. Was it a surprise to you that he took the time to respond. He had clearly read what you had written. I never um, saw it. And he kind of saw it. <laughs> what? You didn't. Oh, I had no are idea. Are you serious? Oh, oh it's, uh, we'll have to supply it to you. It <laughs> yeah. was a, a very princely written thing where oh. it's not very direct and more about, you know, if we water flowers, they will bloom kind of thing. <laughs> Uh, but we we thought that that had been something that was received by you, and we're going to ask if you had kept it. What was your response to it? Did not expect that you you didn't, I didn't know didn't anything it. about it. That's very interesting. Oh, I've really? had a few of it's those. It's uh, cryptic. I've had a few of those with different artists, and with him, I interviewed him several years later, like I want to say the late '90s in New York. Okay. And we had a, a wonderful interview and, you know, we talked mm-hmm. it, like w- I was supposed to have like 15 minutes. We ended up talking for like an hour and he was very warm and he did mention that review. And okay. th- but then we talked also about something I'd written in the uh, Inquirer about a live show. And that was that was incredibly positive. I was incredibly effusive about one of his shows. And he was cryptic, but he was also wily. And I forget exactly how he said it, but it was kind of like, you know, I'm I'm hanging on to that one. You know, like I, I really appreciated what you said there. Okay. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, I there again, it's like you just never know. In those days, it was there was more interaction, you know, and I I was one of uh, several critics that participated in one of the greatest hits things uh you know they like okay. one of his Londell or someone had asked for people they were putting together the two disc greatest hits package or, or maybe it was three and they wanted you know what should be there and so i think edna gunderson right. from usa today and a couple other of us alan light mm-hmm. uh and you know he we were this input was like two seconds we just you know each of us rattled off some stuff in an email or something. And I was astonished when I got the uh, finished thing that that we were all ID'd in the credits. 
you know, like uh, in the special oh, tanks cool. and stuff. But see, like that, it was just uh, kind of a weird part of life where, you know, or time where people really did take, they paid attention to what was going on in the media more than they do now. And as I said, I had, mm-hmm. I, I had run-ins with, you know, not always positive ones with many artists. What a great story. That's yeah. awesome. Well, you'll have to point me to that letter because I can't, I can't believe it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I will send it to you. I can't either. I mean, it's, um, it was on the Housequake Facebook yeah. page, but I'll send you a link to yeah, it. Yeah, I so mean, and it's addressed it. to Dear Tom. I mean, it's very clearly meant, meant uh, for you. Yeah. So I guess maybe it was an open letter. He just didn't yeah. send it. I don't know how. Who knows? Uh, I don't know. We'll make sure you you get to see it, and um, we'll share that on our uh, Twitter and Facebook as well. Um, so you had <laughs> you were able to attend industry only parties yeah. where Prince performed, yes. and was it a given that he was performing when you no, went to No, not or? all the time. I I saw okay. a couple. Uh, there was one time I was in L.A. and he was supposed to do one, and he didn't. You know, and we were there was a bunch okay. of people assembled yeah. and it just didn't happen. And then later, this is several years before that Las Vegas residency and the uh, the times when he was playing mm-hmm. in L.A., uh, like house parties in L.A. a lot. This is before that. But, you know, I had friends that uh, in the industry that went to those and there were nights when. You know, the, every the word would be yes, he's going to play, and then they everyone would be there, and he wouldn't. So you know, there there was some of those. Yeah. Uh, but I was able to be at a couple of like a tour opening one for Love Sexy at Paisley. Cool. Which was amazing. It, and I I yeah. saw a couple. I saw one in New York later after that. The you know just after a tour stop kind of thing, and mm-hmm. the, and then I the one in L.A. where he didn't play. But the thing was that he wasn't one of these artists that curated the guest list in a in a very tight fashion. He knew some people in the industry that you know he and his people knew who they ha- who had to be there. But often they didn't want critics there. There were you know there are now stories with people saying, "Oh yeah, I was at all these shows," and I find them sometimes that's hard to believe because even this thing, which was a kind of a gala event at Paisley to launch Love Sexy, mm-hmm. you know, there was probably a, a small amount of press that were actually invited yeah. to this oh, after okay. show thing. Very cool. Mm. Very cool. And you've reviewed some of his later work, uh, Pletcher Meletra and Artificial Age. I read an article about uh, those two albums. And um, did you find that his later work was a return to form of the Prince of the 80s? Or was it more of like a natural extension of his career? Or did you find that he was reinventing himself. I don't know. What did, what did you think, like, briefly, yeah. the long arc of his well, career? Well, he was one of those people who, like we said, his skill set and his his intensity was such that it felt like, even when he was standing still, like he is on Some of Come, it felt like he was doing some interesting things, and he was pushing, even then, willed himself to evolve and change and grow in in big ways, like we hear on, you know, between some of the records, and then 
a lot in very right. small ways and things that had to do with how he how he presented guitar, where guitar sits in the mix, how he tr- multi-tracked his voice on the later records versus the earlier records. If you listen to where the how the right. drums are, what the uh, effects that are used for the drums and whatever percussion and the drum programming. I mean, you know, he he thought about every little detail uh, in the record making and he was not afraid to test and try and you know often went back to stuff like you know there are parts of those late records where he's very much about it in the you know in you can hear him thinking about those records he made in the 80s and there's other parts like mm-hmm. with third eye girl where it's like you know he's he's really n- not trying to hark back anything backward at all he's looking forward yeah very cool. Um, to that end, I wanted to mention an article you wrote right after Prince's death that we read on Medium.com. Yeah. And I thought it was one of the one of the most well-written and concise. I mean, it was a lengthy piece, but to me it was just full of detail from start to finish and great observations from you. Um, I wanted to read the ending part of it and get just another thought from you about all of the work that he's got that is now, you know, archived somewhere in legal disputes with the estate and labels and all this, hopefully waiting to be released one day. And your take on that at the end of this article was that the music world could use this trove right now, not to sell, not because he was hardwired for the hooks like nobody else, and there were likely some hidden gems in there, but because it represents something profound about what it means to be an artist, the daily work that's involved, the trial and error, the willingness to fail and fail some more, the curiosity that drives someone to make a guitar sound like brakes squealing or doves crying. With this death, we don't currently have any examples of this diabolically unusual confluence of artistry, restlessness, and craftsmanship in music anymore. I thought that was just like a perfect summation of... Uh, what it was like to follow this guy, to really understand that music was his life. He wasn't just a musician. That's who he was as a person. And I know you've since gotten a chance to review the one uh, release, Piano and a Microphone, 1983, and just wondered if you found anything in that one release that sort of talked to what you said that the the music world needs, in well, a sense. Well, the, the thing about that release, and thank you for the kind words, the, the thing about the... Uh, that material from 1983 argues for more of what I was talking about before about the kind of experimental stuff that that maybe the people who want to make money off the vault would would mm-hmm. stay away from but it really is these little things that the, the you know the small curiosity pieces that that song Wednesday on that that make you go okay mm-hmm. you, you yeah. know he was not all you know he was he was in this the the creative thick of things in so many different ways that even something that is tossed off for him this is something that he's not spending a lot of time with that he's you know that he's really just getting down he's using the studio as a, a sketch pad it is it is worthwhile for especially for young artists who you know the the thing now is when you have one idea you immediately go into the phase where you're massaging that idea and you're and you're loading it up with sounds and you know everybody's laptop has you know a gazillion or- <laughs> orchestral sounds in it and all that and he had all that at his disposal too but sometimes what he does to take things to take the big left turn or to do something 
that isn't the expected pop hook thing, which he we know he could do, is really like that to me is part of his legacy that is depending on what happens with the vault. This is, you know, this it's like as time goes by now, you know, we're sort of out of the shock of it, which, by the way, you know, I was completely in the shock of it when I wrote that and I had to write it very quickly. But uh, after, yeah, yeah, I saw it was published the day the day after you had it done in less than twenty four hours. I'm yeah. assuming. The, but the, y- you know, now we see even more the his, his artistic impact. But this the impact of what this if this stuff is curated properly, and that's not to say you know just all all the weird stuff on one record, all the hits on, you know, the potential hits on another record. But if it's really done in a uh-huh. way that, that shows his process a little bit, it can be the kind of thing that the the, the corollary would be stuff like the, the people who cataloged everything that Mozart composed. I mean, and really we don't have, mm-hmm. there's not that much in between. Uh, you know, this guy was incredibly <laughs> prolific. He and And that needs to be addressed. And then, also, the level of invention and, and what he brought to it is just so it's there, there's so much in it that it would really be a crime against music at this point if they did not share that with us in a way that would be, you, you know, viewed. I don't care if they call it, you know, the educational, you know, or if they, they market it as something <laughs> else to music schools. But the, yeah. like that thing that that quality of exploration we don't see that <laughs> there. I can't, no, I can't it's, look around it's good to see, like show it to you now. It's na yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a combination of obvious natural talent that he was born with and extreme hard work. And a lot of people don't realize that that's really what it's going to take to be an artist of that caliber right. is it takes not, not just, the natural talent it takes a lot yeah. of work and g- g- getting up and hitting it the next day and the next day and you know yeah yeah wow <laughs> yeah awesome well we couldn't agree more we want everything from the vault yeah, yeah. so high, we don't high care five across the internet <laughs> <laughs> well we all we all have to agitate for that because really the the danger is that this is curated with a very narrow commercial lens and you know i i mean i was in encouraged to see 1983 but there's so much and you know they've got good people working on right. it you know <sighs> we can only cross our fingers yeah yeah, yeah that's exactly what we're doing right now yeah. <laughs> all right so if we want more tom moon you're a regular contributor to all things considered on npr and have been for many years um you also have a book yeah a uh, thousand recordings to hear before you die. Would you like to tell us a little about that? We'd love to hear well, about sure. it. Well, uh, sure. It came about because this publisher, Workman Publishing, had a, a hit with A uh, Thousand Places to See Before You Die. And they, they started to get into this oh, kind of bucket cool. list business. They asked me, uh, could I do it? And I said, well, I don't know that much about classical music. I want to learn. And, you know, I've got huge – everyone who covers music has huge gaps. Um, and I said, but right. I'm a generalist. I mean, I did pay a lot of attention to the Beatles and the Beach Boys and James Brown and, you know, all kind of jazz, all kind of different stuff. I guess that was the right answer. So I spent three and a half years – the first wow. year of it was mostly spent – 
sitting around with my friends and trolling internet bulletin boards uh, and actually, you know, sparking conversation on internet bulletin boards about, okay, like I'd go to, you know, some of these classic rock boards and I'd be like, all right, what's the credence record that we you know that that you think uh-huh. is the one and yeah. y- you know i i did a ton of listening i did have help with the classical stuff i was lucky to have a, a colleague at the Inquirer who is incredibly well versed help me with that Great. and uh point me in the, the the direction without saying this is the recording so he would suggest oh you should listen to these three versions of of you know the brahms whatever double quartet or whatever and Mm -hmm. i I really took it on as a learning experience and um i listened to a ton of music and the my my only my regret about it now i I have no regrets about the work but but it became like unfortunately in the marketing of stuff like this people instead of appreciating that this was really a thousand jumping off points places to start i i did tv cool. interviews where people would say oh so you these are the thousand best records and i'd always be like no it's uh-huh. not no. that it's not you know point, and right? and so it, you know and i had things that i had to leave out that i thought were really important records but you know once you had for example there's no van halen once you had Deep Purple and Zeppelin and Aerosmith, you sort of had everything covered and you could just, if you could just say, okay, next go listen to Van Halen, that kind of stuff. But, you know, it it was endless decisions like that. And most of them were a lot of fun, but some of them were really hard. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, that's part of having a cool job where you get to sit around with your friends and listen to music for a year before you start writing. (laughs) Sometimes you have to make the tough decisions. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else that you want to tell us about? Uh, No, I'm working on a couple of other things that are, um, you know, that don't have homes yet. So I better not say anything. I don't want to change them. Uh, Okay. Uh, But I, uh, you know, I'm just, Someone who I feel incredibly lucky to have any connection to a job like this anymore. You know, what what you just said, it's interesting. You you think in terms of what you want to accomplish in life and, you know, what's absolutely essential. And sometimes that coincides with what you love anyway. Sometimes it doesn't. And I feel very lucky that in my case, I've been able to find people who will pay me money so I can sit and listen to records. (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it, Tom. It was a pleasure. And, you know, it's just been a joy talking to you. And thanks for spending a little bit of time with us and just letting us pick your brain a little bit and hear some cool stories about Prince. Well, thanks for having and me. And that's what our audience is here for. Yeah, you were, uh, I mean, despite the number of guests we've had, you were the best <laughs> one ever. That's right. All right, I'm holding on to that. For sure, for sure. <laughs> You've got the title, man. You've got the title. That's awesome. Well, that sure was fun. I was really glad to talk to him. We've got to say thank you to Tom Moon again, the very first guest we've had on our podcast. And I think that it was well worth the year plus wait to have a guest on of his caliber and knowledge and experience. 
and plus he was a delight to talk to. It was really nice of him to spend that time to do that with us. It really was. And we're going to be, I'm sure, tweeting about Tom Moon, his work, a lot of the things that he spoke with us about, some things maybe that we were a little unfamiliar with or terminology that we didn't have a good grasp on. I'm going to be sharing all of that on social media. You can find us on Twitter at TMATS, T-M-A-T-S podcast on Facebook, The Mountains and the Sea, a Prince podcast, or you can send me an email, tmatspodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today. We hoped you enjoyed this little interruption and addition to our covering of the 1994-1995 period in Prince's life. Yep. And next time, we promise, we'll have the gold experience for you. I cannot wait. I'm sure you can. (laughs) Have a good one. Thanks for listening.